0: Howdy friends, welcome to episode two of JR Plays. I'm your host, JR Honeycutt, and I'm going to talk to you about what games I played this week. First, I want to say thank you to those of you who've already subscribed after last week's episode one. I really appreciate your support. And if you haven't yet, please consider tapping your phone or clicking your mouse button right where it says subscribe on your screen. I really appreciate it. You're taking the time to listen to this. I was asked last week if I use real names in the show. I do. Amy is really my wife, Nate and Hammer. John, Eric, these guys are all my friends, and I hope that you get to know them. Uh, with no further ado, the games that I played this week were Karuba, Captain Sonar again, Ikki, Cyclades, Tack, San Juan, Tides of Madness, New York 1901, We Didn't Playtest This at All, Potion Explosion, and Innovation. I got in some playtesting on my own games, but I'm not going to cover that here on this show. If you have questions about that, feel free to contact me. I'll start with my new games for the week. Uh, this week, Ikki, Potion Explosion, and We Didn't Playtest This at All, Were new. I'll start with Iki, designed by Kaota Yamada, published by Utsuri. Kickstarted in July 2015, about $80,000 raised and 800 backers. I played this one on Thursday at Collected with John Adkins, with Randy, and with Jason Hammer. Took about two hours for four players, and I ended up winning the game. About 97 to 95 to two other scores in the 80s. A fantastic little Euro game. Really, really impressed with the degree to which players could choose very different pathways and end up with very similar scores. Iki is a game where each of us is an, an Edo knight, a uh, citizen of Edo uh, in Japan, and we are competing to be the most Iki artisan, where Iki means some combination of profitable, honorific, socially adept. Uh, competing for what are effectively like honor points; these are victory points of the game. They're called Iki points, and we're doing that by running around and collecting fish and stopping fires hiring workers, building buildings, and doing all sorts of little things to collect points. Uh, it, it is a straight Euro, so you could theoretically lift the theme entirely out of the game and still play through the mechanisms and everything, but I thought it was very nice. had a very nice Euro feel, but all of the art and all of the components felt very... I guess Japanese is the right word, although I don't know the culture well enough to say this definitely was that, but it, it the art was very nice. It looked like that kind of classical, almost feudal Japanese art. It was very impressive. Uh, It was kind of neat. The coins were in denominations of one and four, which is apparently thematically correct, and I'd never seen that before. Uh, As players, we were marching our big worker around, taking actions on this road, that is the road in the middle of Edo, where we're basically visiting shops and interacting with people who work there. We got a chance to hire workers and to put those workers to work in these various shop areas, where eventually they would retire and start giving us uh, these reasonable benefits at the end of every turn. We also had a chance to stop fires and collect resources so we could build our own actual buildings that gave us a ton of victory points. Iki was, as I said, a straight euro, but it was interesting in that there was a lot of player choice that developed how the board went. It was a worker placement game on a rondelle, so you could bid each turn for how far you'd like to move, or at least in player order, choose how far you got to move on an exclusive track, moving one, two, three, or four spaces around a board that has eight spaces going in a circle. And the player who moved the least far got to go first in turnover, so they would have access to this marketplace where there are new people they could hire to generate wealth or generate points or generate resources. And that was all very interesting. It was also pretty cool to see the combinations of generic actions that the game starts with, combined with where people put their workers, which afforded specific actions, led to... A bunch of, I have to imagine, a a functionally limitless number of combinations of actions that could be taken in these places where who I chose to pay money to hire absolutely dictated the options that the other players in the game had, and vice versa. Their choices affected what I could do. And those workers were only there for a little while in the game, maybe three of 13 game rounds. game's played over 13 lunar months. Um, So really, really affected by other people's choices while they play. Definitely really enjoyed it. Um, If I had to... Any complaints at all, it would just be that the fires happen at a predetermined time, and they happen with a predetermined vehemence. There will be a certain size of fire at an exact time. And I thought that felt kind of non-thematic. I wanted the fire to be like, oh no, there's a fire, surprise, and some stuff gets burned down. But aside from that, the theme wrapped pretty well into it, given that it is a uh, middleweight euro. If you get a chance to check it out, please do. I'm not sure if it's in distribution yet. I think the pre-order's up on BoardGameGeek, but had a fun time with that one. Iki. And thanks to John Adkins for teaching us. Had a great time. Another new game played this week was Potion Explosion, uh, distributed in the United States by CoolMoney or Not. Also played this one with John and Joanna and my wife Amy at Nerd Night, our monthly charity party, just this past Saturday. Had a great time with Potion Explosion. If you haven't already seen it, the hook for this game is that you've got a bunch of marbles in four different colors in a rack, if you can imagine, almost like a bowling ball return, five of them next to each other, where you drop the marbles and then they come out, and they come out in a random order because there's a little mechanism by which they have to float into these little tracks and then come down, and half of it is covered, so you can only see like the first ten marbles in the line, and there's some more behind it. And on your turn, you pick one of those marbles up, and it represents ingredients. You're going to put it in these potions. And if other color marbles smash together as a result of your picking your marble up, you also get those ones. There's been a potion explosion. You get additional ingredients. And then you use those little ingredients to uh, literally put those marbles on top of little potion cards, which are shaped like potions, or if they're upside down, they look like hot air balloons, uh, to finish those potions, which give you points and also special powers. And those special powers have to do with either manipulating how you pull marbles, potion ingredients, out of the rack that has these things, or potentially letting you steal from each other or manipulating how you get to play them to make more of your own potions. It's a fairly simple game. Uh, The rules are... The light, easy to understand. We played it in about 45 minutes with four players. Maybe a little longer, but it was a party, so it can kind of stretch out. Uh, I won on tiebreaker with John Adkins, 47 points each, and had the weirdest tiebreaker I think I've ever seen. The tiebreaker was each of you gets to pull a marble and see how many ingredients you get as a result of pulling that marble. Well, the problem is it said that the person who went first in the game, which happened to have been me, I was the first player, got to do it first. So I pulled the marble, and I took the best choice of all the ones that were there, which is you know many, many different choices. And then John got the second best choice, so it's more or less built for the first player to always win that tiebreaker unless some random luck means the marbles come out in a way that we couldn't have predicted. And I'm curious as to know why they didn't just say, all right, the person who had the first player marker, who was first in turn order, that person is the winner of the game, because it just as easily could have been that. It was strange to see it happen that way, but aside from that, it was a fantastic experience. Um, I've talked, or at least I've written at length about Splendor, being the kind of game that some people think is too simple to be fun, and yet so many people love it. And some people have said of Splendor that it seems like a really interesting mechanism or a really interesting little quasi-engine builder that wanted to have a bigger game built around it. And Splendor is really in no way like Potion Explosion, other than that you take resources and you use those resources to build cards. But Splendor doesn't have special powers, and Splendor doesn't have uh, set collection, aside from just the fact that you want to get certain ones to, you know, to impress the nobles or whatever. And Potion Explosion does have a lot of that stuff, but I couldn't help but think about it and say to myself, you know, if I was designing Splendor, I probably would have pushed it to be a game like Potion Explosion, where you introduce some additional randomness, and you have special powers, and you do all these things. And here's the rub. I think Splendor is a better game. So as a designer, as a developer, it kind of makes me say, you know, these things that I want so desperately, maybe it's best to not put them in there. I think Potion Explosion is nice. I'm going to buy it just to have those cool components But I'm not sure that I would necessarily want to play it over and over and over again versus Splendor, which I have played 25 or 30 times. Because as the game goes longer in Potion Explosion, it takes longer and longer for players to take their turns. There's a free way for them to order the special actions they've already earned. These potions they've completed, they can use for these special powers, like moving marbles and grabbing marbles and such. And then they have to decide which marble they want to take from, I think, like 50 different choices on five different racks. Whichever is going to give them the most marbles they can get and the right marbles they want to get, because there's four different colors. And those choices take time, and there's not not much to do, in fact, there's nothing to do when it's not your turn, other than sit there and wait for it to be your turn. So the downtime's fairly prohibitive, but in Splendor, the downtime's not prohibitive, because, you know, a turn is to take some chips or buy a card or whatever. And that keeps the game moving, so that even though you don't have a lot to think about, you also don't have a lot of time that you have to worry about not playing the game. So I'm not sure the Potion Explosion was better, but I think it was very good, and I'm happy that I played it, and I can't wait to play it again. I'm definitely going to buy a copy of that. So Potion Explosion, totally recommend that you try it. Really, really fun. Third new game this week was We Didn't Playtest This At All by Asmati Games and Chris Seslick. Uh, I've actually played the expansion We Didn't Playtest This Either, but I got a chance to play the base game, and I lost in two seconds, that's what happens. This game is like game design version of Flux, kind of. It's silly. You draw cards, you have no idea what they do. Star cards are better than other cards. It says so right on the card. Uh, It's ridiculous. It's a fun little flux game. I think it came out in 2007. If you haven't played it before, try it. Just because I think it's one of those nice little nods to the actual people in the game design hobby who make games so much fun. And I think experiencing it is something that everyone should do, especially for interested in game design, just to think about all the wild and kooky stuff that happens and say to yourself, wow, I can't believe somebody designed that into this experience. So really fun. I had a chance to play some of my older favorites, too, uh, Cyclades, San Juan, and Innovation. Uh, Cyclades, published by Madigo, uh designed by legendary designers Bruno Cafala, Ludovic Montblanc. I played this one with John Adkins again with Jason Hammer, my buddy Eric Yorkston, who's back in town for being gone for the summer, and Glenn, and uh, Hammer won this one in a five-player game. We played the base game of Cyclades, even though Hammer owns all the expansions and we were going to play with all the expansions, but we've got two or three new players at the table, and it just occurred to us we should probably just give them the base experience. And as it turns out, the base experience of Cyclades is fantastic, and that was a wonderful decision, because it did exactly what every game of Cyclades does. In Cyclades, players are, I guess, runners of kingdoms or something, but they're fighting to build two metropolises, metropoli, metropolises. Uh, And to control them at the end of a round, and the first player who can do that is the winner. And players start with no metropolises, metropoli, metropolises, And they have to build them, either by collecting four cards of one type, which is a priest card, or by building four buildings of the four different types. And in order to do this, they have to win bids in uh, dedicating themselves to the different gods in the game. And those gods afford certain actions, and those actions let you take certain buildings and move around on the board. So, Cyclades is a game that is absolutely all about fighting on islands in Greece, using these mythical creatures and using your bidding power and your manipulation power to get to take the actions you want. But it's difficult because you can't just decide to move, you know, move your armies and go attack somebody. You have to win the bid for the god that lets you do that. Ares is the god in the game that lets you do that. And if other players also want to do that, they're going to bid on that. So, you're winning, you're trying to win at least bids on one or two tracks that are going to help you along your way, and you're totally being pushed off by other people who also want to do those for maybe very different reasons. Encyclides always comes down to this game of like, there's not really any tension at first, and people kind of get to do what they want to do, and everyone sort of finds their strategy, but then eventually it becomes obvious who's going to win, and then everyone sort of bands together to keep the first person from winning, and then the second person from winning, and then the third person from winning, and then it turns out that the guy who was in fourth or fifth place, who was well behind and felt like he never had a chance, ends up coming back and being one move away from winning the game, and maybe even winning the game, Uh, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I think Cyclades, even besides the miniatures and the absolutely gorgeous art and the bidding system, which is among my very favorite in any game that I've played, I think the thing that stands out to me the most about Cyclades is that every time I've played it, there's been a moment in the game when one player said, oh man, I'm I'm toast. I definitely cannot win this game. And then by the end of the game, that player had a move or two that absolutely would have won it for them. And maybe they do and maybe they don't, but they got back into it. Encyclades totally rewards emotional toughness. It awards the player who is willing to dig in and say, Okay, I've got no money, I've got no power, I've got no allies, and I've got no plan. But what I do have is a little hope. I've got an island to myself. And I've got the gods, who I believe will bless me with their powers if I can just stick in this thing for a little while longer. And as it turns out, it happens, and it makes for the best experience. Eric loved it, which is great. We were showing him the games we thought he would. Next week, we're going to show him Kimet, which I'm also really excited about. And I think Kimmet's probably even a better game than Cyclades. But that's saying something, because I really enjoy Cyclades. So check that one out if you haven't played it. Uh, super, super worth it. came out in 2009. I think if Cyclades came out today, it would get just as much hype as many of the other fantastic games that come out really, really good. Another old favorite I got to play this week was San Juan, published by Rio Grande Games and designed by Andreas Seyfarth. Uh, San Juan is, many people say, Puerto Rico the card game or a simplified version of Race for the Galaxy. You are trying to build buildings and plantations in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And you're doing so uh, in order to score points. And the game ends when somebody has built their 12th card in front of them, which is reminiscent of Race for the Galaxy for those of you who played it. It's an action selection game where, on your turn, you choose an action. You get to do it with a little bit of a bonus, and then each other player gets a chance to do it too, exactly like Puerto Rico. right? So you're playing it, and you're using your cards as currency, just like Race for the Galaxy. So whenever you want to build something, you've got to pay for it in cards. So maybe I want to build the office, and it's going to cost me uh, I think, four cards to build the office. Well, I've got to pay four cards from my hand, unless I was the one to the action for building, in which case, I only have to pay three cards from my hand. Unless I also have the quarry, in which case, I only have to pay two cards from my hand. In which, unless I also have the library, in which case I also have to play one card from my hand. So you can chain these different buildings together and explore these different pathways to victory. And then see who wins by the end of it. Super, super fun. There's an app for San Juan, at least on iOS. If you think that sounds cool at all, I recommend that you try it. You can knock out a game in ten minutes probably on the app. It's a lot of fun. Also play it in person. Uh, I bought the game... Two years ago, after being introduced to it by Mark Montgomery, one of the gamers in our Thursday night group, and Mark has a huge game collection and knows basically every game, and uh, he introduced me to San Juan, and I immediately fell in love with it for the simplicity, because I knew that I could teach it to anybody that I wanted to teach it to with probably absolutely no problem, and it's been that way. Uh, we had two new players for the game on Saturday when we played it, and both of them had a great time. So that's San Juan. Really recommend it. Um, did have a funny moment. I lost the game to John Adkins, who's on a winning streak against me now, I think, uh, 34 to 32. And I played a tight, effective game. I used the Harbor, which is an expansion card, which gives you points every time you sell. I was really rolling in the marketplace. I had all sorts of cards going back and forth, and John still beat me. And you know that feeling when you're teaching somebody a game, and you don't really care about winning. You're just trying to play the best that you can, and you kind of want to show them different things that can happen. And at the end, the new player wins, and they win with a score that's high enough, and it makes you go, huh, stroking my beard, or perhaps, like, stroking my braid or something. Like, I wonder if that player did something they weren't supposed to do to have that many more points than I did, because I felt like I played pretty well. But if I bring it up, then it might create a situation that leaves a bad taste in their mouth. Maybe it sounds like I'm being competitive. But I don't really care about winning. I just want to make sure that I know that they played the game the right way. And then it makes you say, well, at least it makes me say, why. Well, I- It's probably not even important. The next time they play, they'll get corrected, so maybe we'll just play again, and I'll keep an eye out for it. But I I know John won, and John's a very good game player, so it's not surprising that John won. He wins all the time. But some part of me thought maybe I missed something in there, and I might have taught him something wrong or something happened incorrectly. I don't know. I'll talk to him about it. I guess we're going to play San Juan again sometime soon, I hope. But it was weird. I thought I did well. I got beat. That's fine. Not competitive, but it was an interesting moment. If you guys have had that happen before, I'd be curious to hear your stories about it. So the third game, one of my old favorites that I got to play this week, was Innovation by Asmati, uh, again, and Carl Chedick. Uh, Carl Chedick, of course, a brilliant game designer, responsible for games like Collier Rome, again, Innovation. And uh, this one, oh my gosh, what a fantastic game. I think Innovation costs $20. It's something like 120 cards in a box with four little player placards. I don't think you can get more game in a small box uh, than Innovation. I think, like, San Juan is a fantastic card game in a small box. The Castles of Burgundy, Castles of Burgundy card game, is a fantastic game in a small box, but even though those games are fantastic, I think Innovation, at least for me, is the standard setter. Uh, Maybe Matai and I pops that, but I think Innovation's still better. Uh, You've got 10 ages of cards, and players draw these cards, and each one of the cards is unique in one of five different colors, which represents sort of different areas of technology. Each one represents a technology that gives players a unique ability they can activate on their turn, and then in doing so, cause these crazy things to happen. Uh, If you imagine Flux... Only a Flux was a civilization-building game where the cards gave you cool actions you could take. That's kind of what's happening. You can totally have a strategy and come into the game thinking about what you want to do. But since every single card is unique and you have moderate to very little control over what cards you actually draw, most of the game is just responding to what you've gotten and then hoping, clenching your teeth and praying for dear life that by the time it comes back to your turn again... You're still going to have the choices that you had when your turn ended. You only get two actions, and if I had a dollar for every time that I just wanted a third action, just one time, just one time, in this game, can I get a third action so I can do the thing that I needed to do and set my turn up for? Uh, I would have I don't know four or five hundred thousand dollars. I'd have so many dollars. Innovation, so much fun, so tense, but in a way that's really relaxing. In some ways, even if you're a very competitive player, and I often am, a very competitive player. I find that if I know that a game has enough randomness in it that I really don't have a ton of control and I really can't blame failure completely on my own mistakes, it lets me take a step back, gain some perspective and relax and sort of see what happens and try to respond to it rather than trying to force my will on the game state. Innovation is definitely that kind of game and it's so much fun to play, so much so that I care more about getting to do cool stuff in the game and sort of enabling certain things to happen than I do about actually winning. I don't know I can't even remember. I, I did win this game on Saturday at Nerd Night, uh, but just barely, and I won because somebody followed me, and it was you know, maybe something they shouldn't have done, and I got a little lucky. Um, the game took a little while, so it's okay that it ended, but it was more fun just to watch new players get a chance to play it. I played with Amy. She'd played before, but it had been a while, and it was so cool to watch her get in and enjoy the game. Uh, Amy's a very good game player and a very smart game player, and sometimes can be a little meticulous in the way she chooses her actions, um, but innovation, I think, is right up her alley. A limited number of choices, but those choices have powerful effects, and she can see the effect of them. So instead of being overwhelmed with too many choices, like like an analysis paralysis thing, she instead can choose the best one out of the few that are there and then really hammer that home. So I really enjoy it. I think Amy really enjoys it. That one's going to be around for a long time. Uh, innovation. Fantastic. Check it out. Totally recommend you buy it and play it. Other games I had a chance to replay this week include Karuba, published by Haba, of course designed by Rudiger Dorn, and it was a Spiel des Jahres nominee this year, uh, eventually losing to code names, but Karuba is fantastic. I played it for the first time at BGG Spring back in May. I've since played it about ten times. I own a copy here at the house. We played it on the show live on Wednesday night on the Nerd Nighters. Uh, me and Ace played it through Tabletop Simulator, and we let the audience members just sort of play at home with a set up board. In Karuba, players are running teams of adventurers who are exploring through the jungle, using tiles to either create new paths or move their adventurers along. Each of the four adventurers in search of a temple that is roughly the same color, that is the same color as the adventurer. And as they do that, they'll stop in and pick up uh, gold nuggets and jewels and eventually they'll find the temple and get victory points for having done so. The game ends when all 36 tiles have been drawn or uh, when one player has found all four temples. Uh, Karuba is a perfectly reasonable, wonderful little family game. You could even play it as a co-op if you wanted to by setting up one board instead of four. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, I recommend that you try it. If you've got kids, it's an absolute must-buy from this year. I think when it comes down to it, is going to be one of my five, my top five games this year, unless something comes out in the next two months that I'm unaware of. It's just so much fun, and I was so surprised by how much fun I had playing it a second, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth time. So check out Karuba. Another game at Nerd Night I got to play was New York 1901 uh, by Blue Orange, uh, designed by Shanae LaSalle, I hope I got that name right, with art from the legendary Vincent Dutreid get to play this with Ace, which is one of the first times I've played a game in person with Ace since Gen Con. Also with Heather and Ed Larson. Heather was one of the original co-hosts of me and Ace's show. It's been a long time since I'd seen her in person, her and her husband, Ed, but it was so wonderful to get to play a game with them. They had New York 1901, so I taught them their copy. Uh, We played, it was a normal game of New York 1901. For those of you who haven't played it, each of you is a leading an architectural firm in New York City at the turn of the century trying to build these wonderful architectural buildings. Um, bronze buildings, silver buildings, gold buildings, each of which get taller and taller, each of which replace the ones before. On your turn, you're taking a card that gives you access to a certain plot of land around New York City in, I think, in in Manhattan, in the downtown area. And then you can eventually build skyscrapers there, building larger and larger skyscrapers, getting as many points as you can, competing to have the most buildings on certain intersections and on certain streets, and even going after little special bonus points. Um, It's the third time, second or third time that I played it. I got it at Gen Con last year. It's an interesting game. It has that three-step action system that games like Ticket to Ride do, where on your turn you can do this, or do this, or do this. And it's usually this, this sort of balanced pace of like, I'm going to get some cards, and I'm going to spend some cards. But in New York 1901, you never actually spend cards. You get a card, you put down a worker, and maybe you don't necessarily build something right away. And later, you do build something, or maybe even you build two somethings if you have a special action card that lets you do that, which you start with a couple of them. Or maybe you skip your turn, and instead of drawing a card and claiming new land, you demolish some of your buildings and build a bigger building on top of it. The actions are super simple. And I'm not sure why, but every time that I've played New York 1901, I've struggled to, to grok to understand exactly what the actions are until halfway through the game. Even though the actions are incredibly simple, this is absolutely a gateway game. And there's just something about the combination of demolishing buildings and adding buildings that always gives me just a little bit of trouble, the way that I process game information. So... Not sure why, but that happens. But we played it. Had a great time. Uh, Great to see Heather and Ed. I really enjoyed that one. I got a chance to play Tides of Madness again at Nerd Night with uh, Matt Balls. This is Jason Hammer's brother, Matt Hammer. Matt Balls is short for Spaghetti and Matt Balls. So uh, new character for you. He's a wonderful guy. Love playing games with Matt. He is a fantastic gamer. He's so patient. He loves all the same games that I do. So I love it. Anytime I get a chance to play games with him. At Nerd Night, we played a couple games of Tides of Madness, which is... The, not an expansion, it's like a new version of Tides of Time, which came out last year at Gen Con. It's a two-player drafting game where each of you is sort of leading a civilization through time. I'm not sure what the theme is here, but Cthulhu is like driving you mad while you do it. So you get five cards, and you draft five cards back and forth, so you each have five cards. Each of the cards has one of the five suits on it, um, and at the end of the round, they each have a scoring criteria, and you get points for what you score. And You keep one permanently, ditch one, get two more cards, so you have a new hand of five cards. You do this three times. You have Seven cards in front of you, I'm sorry, eight cards in front of you at the end of the game. No, seven is correct. Seven cards in front of you at the end of the game, you get a total score for your three rounds of play, one of you wins. Well, that's Tides of Time, and Tides of Madness adds something pretty interesting in that you have madness tokens, and some cards that you draft give you madness tokens at the end of your turn, and if at the end of any game turn you have nine madness tokens, you automatically lose. I really enjoyed Tides of Time. I played it a dozen times, maybe more, but it sort of lacked in an additional level of depth that made you ever choose... Not to do a thing that was obviously best for you. And if you guys have ever played drafting games or, I mean, ever played Magic the Gathering, you know that sometimes you've got to make choices between two things that aren't great. And that it's those choices that really define how well you do, not your ability to just take the best card that you see all the time, because usually there's not a best card. Well, in Tides of Time, there was oftentimes just a best card, and that made it a little uninteresting. Well, Tides of Madness brings in this second axis of player choice because oftentimes the card that really is best for you is going to lead you to go mad and lose the game. So you've got to take a little bit of a different track on how you want to get your victory. Uh, and I love that. I love that about the game. It's a $12 game, I think, maybe a $15 game. If you're into two-player games, you should absolutely check it out. I do think it's better than Tides of Time, and I really liked Tides of Time. So it's uh, designed by Christian Kurla. I hope I got the name right. Published by Portal Games, Ignacy Treasure Check. Uh, check it out. Fantastic, fantastic little game. And of course, thanks to Matt Ballas for letting me play. Matt and I also had a chance to play TAC, the abstract game designed by James Ernest from The World of the Name of the Wind, uh, a book series written by Patrick Rothfuss. Uh, Tack is a wonderful, wonderful game that I absolutely adore. I had a chance to play it with James Ernest at Origins earlier this year. We played like 30 games. James beat me in like 35 of those 30 games. But I had a great time to learning from someone who was great at the game how to play it. And I've been trying to teach my friends sort of slowly as we do it. I mentioned to Matt that I had it at Nerd and he was really excited because he saw the Kickstarter and wanted to back it, so we got it out and played four games, and the same thing that always happens, happened. I put it on the table, I explained the rules, and I can only teach this game by showing people what is a legal move and what is not a legal move, because for whatever reason I struggle to use words to teach how to play, despite the fact that the rules are fairly simple. Either put a piece down, or move some pieces. And there are a couple rules about how those things happen, and that's it. But we played TAC, played four games. Matt loved it. I loved it. Beautiful, beautiful experience. Really fun. One thing that I learned from James Ernest in playing TAC, we played seriously, like, 30 games. And I don't think he made one single play suggestion to me the entire time. Even though he was beating me so badly, and it would have been so easy for him to just say, hey man, don't do this, or do more of this, or think about this. But I never asked the question, because I enjoy the discovery, and I wanted to try to throw myself against this wall, this unbelievable beachhead, and just figure out a way to beat him. And eventually I was able to do it like once. I got lucky and I won. But it felt so good just to see my play get better and better and to see our games go longer and longer. And to see James go from sort of just like idly putting pieces down and winning to actually having to struggle a little bit to actually really being engaged in the game. And that was beautiful. And each time that I've taught TAC, I've tried to give players the same experience. Rather than give them any strategy at all, which is tough for me, because I love to sort of puppet master, quote-unquote puppet master, and show players how to play. Instead, I just let them play, and if they have questions, I answer them. But I let them discover it for themselves, and it's such a wonderful thing to do. And it's beautiful because at least the way that A Wise Man's Fear, book two, in the Kingkiller Chronicles, the series this comes from, a quote, the main character learns how to play the game in much the same way. And James designed a game that delivers the same experience that the main character in the book had playing this game and it's one of my favorite books, so what a beautiful thing, and I'm glad that I got to play this with Matt. The last game I'm going to discuss here is Captain Sonar. I had a chance to play it again on Thursday night at Collected, and boy, howdy, let me tell you. Last week on Episode 1, I played Captain Sonar, and we played the turn-based version, and we played a, basically a two-on-three game with the turn-based version, I enjoyed it. It was, you know, your normal sort of run-in-the-mill, hidden-movement game like Theory of Dracula, Letters from Whitechapel, Specter Ops, etc. This time we played it real-time, And gosh, I was terrible as a captain at the real-time game. It was four on three, I had three players, so I was taking the role of the captain, deciding where we were going to move, and also of the first mate, deciding how we would load up our torpedoes, or our drones, or our sonar, etc. And I did a pretty bad job of it. We had a first-time player for our first mate, whose job it was to listen to and track the other team's movement, and also a first-time player for our engineer, whose job it was to mark our damage and make sure those things happened accordingly. And boy, we lost. And we lost because I was a bad captain. And as it turns out, guys, I am so bad at co-op games. Because I'm an alpha gamer, and I hate playing with alpha gamers. So I either do one of two things. I either alpha game, and I create a bad experience, and I can recognize that bad experience while it's happening, and it makes me feel bad. Or I don't engage in the game, and I don't have a good time. This time I went more towards the former, and I could recognize immediately that it was just a structural failure and that it wasn't going to be a good time for anyone, and I backed out of it as quickly as I could after our team lost. And I was surprised, I think, because I expected it to be more of a good time than it was, but for me, I couldn't do it. Uh, I had some of the same issues I have with Space Cadet Dice Tools when I played it, which is a great game by Jeff and Sidney Engelstein, but when I played it, there's just so much chaos going on, and I have such an emotional need to control that and to make sure I know exactly what's happening and make perfect choices with perfect information that it really hampers my ability to do, I think, what a submarine captain actually would have to do in real life, which is use imperfect information to just make the best choice available and do what they could on the fly. And that's why I'm not a submarine captain and probably will never be a starship captain either. Although, I do like Artemis, and we do better in that, so I'm not sure what's going on there, but yeah. Uh, If you enjoy that kind of nonsense or that kind of madness, you definitely should try Captain Sonar, and I encourage everyone to play it. It is a very good game, and certainly I think one of the best games that came out of Gen Con this year. Thanks everyone for listening. This has been episode 2 of JR Plays. We will see you guys next week, hopefully with another big week of gaming. Bye guys.